You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or this week was way better last year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, don't make him angry. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. It's Mr. Jeff McLodge. I do have anger issues, or so I've been told. Go on, tell us all about it. Tell me about <laughs> I, your mother. I, uh, don't, you're making me angry, Bill. <laughs> and you wouldn't like me when I'm angry. And as you've said, and I think I've said on the show before, we have been friends since the time of the dinosaurs, with nary an argument between us, other than to d- dispute the track order of certain records. <laughs> so, Well, there was that one time that you, like, almost died at the gym, and then I was, like, supposed to stay at your house, and they're like, yeah, he's not home right now, he's in the hospital, because he's a dingling. Yeah, he's dead. He couldn't be here, because he had to go to the afterlife for a few hours. Yeah. Sorry. That yeah. was unintentional, though. <laughs> Yeah, well, you apologize, and I was like, don't ever do that again. That kind of leads us into what I was going to talk about today. Yeah, I got a message from a listener, and they were talking about how they really enjoyed the segment we did some months ago when we were talking about, like, the bizarre gym stories. I think I I I mentioned a guy named David Lee Rodriguez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Um, I remember that. They were like, oh, my God, do you have any more gym stories? And I was like, yeah, of course. It's like a bottomless well. (laughs) (laughs) There is always, always, always going to be people at the gym that just, what exactly are you doing? And more importantly, what do you think you're doing? Exactly. Yes. I say that surprisingly often. My favorite time, I've been a gym member now since like 2009 after open heart surgery. Right. And I found that no matter which gym I've been a member at, and I've been a member at a few different ones at different times, yeah. is the best time of year to go to the gym is January. Oh, yeah. That's, that's when, when everybody's that's, there. Yeah. That's when everybody's there. And you can watch people hurt themselves <laughs> in ways that they will remember for the rest of their lives. <laughs> <laughs> that would leave bruises that will not go away for many, many weeks. Well, it's like terrible sadistic pleasure to be like, you know, jogging away on the treadmill. Yep. Watching somebody who's just spent $450 on tap out clothes, completely <laughs> baffled by the ab machine, and then knock the wind out of themselves when they push it down with their arms and let it go. And 25 pounds punches him in the chest. I used to go to this gym whenever I lived in the apartment building. Uh, my my ex-girlfriend and I had a mem- both had memberships over there, so we'd work out together. We had this like little game where we would just like nickname everybody in the gym so that we yeah. would know who we were talking about when yes. we were making fun of people. There was this one dude. I don't even remember his nickname. I'm sure it had the word tripod in it. He was this little Portuguese dude, right? He was like five foot four. He was an older man. So average-sized Portuguese dude. (laughs) (laughs) And he was wearing these, like, reflective satin silver, like, disco shorts. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Five foot four, I don't care. This guy had a unit on him. He's just like walking by in these disco shorts with this bulge that would make David Bowie like raise an eyebrow. And he like walks by. Yeah. He like wa- yeah, with his disco balls bulging out of his nice. pants. And then, you know, my girlfriend like turns to me. And she goes, oh, my God, did you see that? I was like, I don't think anybody hasn't seen that. <laughs> How could I not? <laughs> For me, it was. So I used to go for a long time. I went early, 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 early in the morning, like four thirty, five o'clock in the morning. Uh-huh. And I would go to the gym and do my hour and then take a shower, get ready for work and leave the gym in my work clothes and go to work. Sure. At that time in the morning, there's a very specific crowd that was going to the gym that I was going to. And there was the guy in dress shoes who would run on the treadmill in Oxford shoes. But everything else was gym clothes. <laughs> but like he was breaking in leather loafers and he would run in those. So I don't know what the story with him was, but he went every single day. There was the lady who was, I used to call her the trophy wife because she was just on that point where the plateau of all the work that she had had done from surgery and anything else was starting to decline. And she was yep. working out trying to prevent the decline from being any steeper. And there was the lady who, who would come in. With the biggest cough I had ever seen, a big iced coffee. It was like a half a gallon of iced coffee, clearly with like 150 sugars and creams in it. Yep. And she would walk at less than two miles an hour on the treadmill for 10 minutes. I swear to God, 10 minutes. And then she'd leave the gym. And she was younger than I was. So it's not like, you know, somebody who's like rehabbing from hip surgery or something. This is just like she had 10 minutes to kill. She actually walked to the treadmill faster than she walked on the treadmill. Yeah, it was. She did more distance going from the door to the treadmill than she did on the treadmill. All right. Well, this is a bottomless well. We can revisit this topic again in a couple of weeks. Before we get the show started, I do have my very popular and always well-received trivia question. Hey, Jeff. Hey. You know who Donald Duck is, right? I do. But did you know that Donald Duck has a middle name? No. Now that I think about it, Donald Duck would be better served wearing a pair of satin reflective silver disco shorts. But that's another story for another show. Uh, Yeah, but anyway, Donald Duck has a middle name. What is Uh. Donald Duck's middle name? Oh, uh, I don't know. I'll tell you at the end of the show. No, you won't, because you don't know. Uh, that's, That's pretty true. All right, but this is the week beginning, March the 28th, and I believe it is your turn to start. It is indeed my turn to start. March 28th, 1797, a New Hampshireite, or as we call them now, a granite stater named Nathaniel Briggs, patents a washing machine. But the patent that he wrote and drew and submitted and had approved was destroyed when the patent office burned to the ground not long after. (laughs) So there's no written or visual record of the patent or what his machine looked like or how it worked. Do you know if he later patented the fire extinguisher? I don't know. I'm sure he was. He patented being really pissed off at the patent office, I bet, though. (laughs) What do you mean it burned to the ground? Like, the copy machines haven't been invented yet. Uh, You had the only copy. I drew that on some birch bark. We're in New Hampshire, for Christ's sakes. Um, <laughs> ironic thing is, 17. I, I'm not sure if it was a clothes washing machine, but I'm going to guess that, it, that that's what they mean. Yeah. And that the technology to make washing machines work has not changed much since the very early 20th century. So I don't know what the hell he would have been making in 1797 that was a machine that washed clothes. Unless it was some big drum that was pushed around by a goat, which, because it was New Hampshire, is entirely possible. 
See, I have a front-loading washing machine, which does not wash clothes. Yeah, I had a front-loading washing machine, too, which also did not wash clothes. It makes them wet. <laughs> that that does pretty good, but yeah. They're easier, the front-loaders. Front-loaders are easier, obviously, but yeah, the, the top-loaders, they clean way better, I think. They, they do, and I, I switched to a top-loader when my very expensive, just conjuring the image of this machine in my head makes me angry. This very expensive front loader that I bought, I was very happy with for the first month. Ended up needing so much work after a two years that I, I got rid of it and replaced it for a top loader. Nothing says fun like having to take the whole thing apart so you can empty a filter every two loads of laundry. <laughs> My front loading machine, this this was something. I had a bunch, don't, don't, don't ask me for an explanation. This, it just happened, okay? I had a bunch of razor blades in my pocket of my pants. I did not take the razor blades out whenever I threw them into the washing machine. And the razor blades got out of the pockets. And you're going to be like, oh, my God, I cut all your clothes up to pieces. I freaking wish. No, they ended up in the gasket, which mm-hmm. cut open the gasket. And then every time I ran my washing machine until I figured out what was going on, there would be just gallons and gallons of water all over the floor. Oh, lovely. Yeah. The beauty of front-loading washing machines. Not only do they not wash your clothes, but when they break, they ruin your floor. Yeah. Hilariously, my mom had to show how funny she is. When I was showing her my new washing machine, I opened the top and I was like, see? And she looked in. She didn't say, that's a nice washing machine, Jeff. She didn't ask any questions like, what did you pay for it? Where did it come from? Why did you pick this one? She said, you can reach the bottom of that. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, mom. And the answer was <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> so uh, depends on what I have on for shoes. I'm short because of your jeans. Moving on to the 29th, March the 29th, 1985. Ooh, uh, a cinematic masterpiece known as... Desperately Seeking Susan hits the theaters. I fell asleep watching that on cable TV, Bill. Ooh, yeah, I should be so lucky. I actually saw that movie in the theater. It was 1985, after all. This movie was promoted to the freaking moon and back. It starred Rosanna Arquette and Adrian Quinn and Madonna. Madonna appearing for about 11 minutes. Yeah, collectively, yeah. Madonna was a triple threat in this movie. Uh, she could not sing, dance, or act. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, like, the, the story of this movie, I don't even remember. I just remember, like, Madonna was, like, this cool girl in New York, and Rosanna Arquette thought she was cool. Madonna sold her jacket at, like, a thrift store, and Rosanna Arquette bought the jacket, but there was, like, a crime attached to the jacket. Or something. I don't remember. I kind of don't care. Uh, <laughs> but that was like one of Rosanna Raquette's like first movies, I think, too. Yep, that was one of her early ones. I remember this movie in that I was on the couch, and it was on, and then I blinked, and then another movie was on. That's my memory of Desperately Seeking Susan. <laughs> Every think- time I've tried to watch it, that's the experience that I've had. So apparently, my brain just goes, uh, you know what? Nope. And that's it. And then 90 minutes later, I wake up and something else is on. You know what I can say about this movie? It's not Madonna's worst movie. <laughs> oh, God, no. Shanghai Surprise is her worst movie. It might be Madonna's best movie now that I think about it. Yeah. yeah so she's in it the least. So the, yeah, yeah. she's got that going for her. Anything where she doesn't have to talk. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I don't think she kind of. I don't think she really talks a lot either. 
Oh. No, she doesn't. Boy, she was all over the poster. Oh, yeah. And she was all, all over the junket. All right. So, uh, and all over the soundtrack, too. And all over the soundtrack. Yes. Get all right. Soundtrack. So, let's, let's get on to the 30th. March 30th, 1964. The original run of the TV game show Jeopardy begins. My God, how long has that show been on? Right? Well, that was it's the same thought that I had. Actually, I had no idea the show had been on that long. But there's a break in between this first run and when it kind of came back to TV that I wasn't aware of. Because there's a period in my life where the only game shows I watched were on in the afternoon and not at night. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it was it was on in the 60s. That's right. With like Don Pardo or something like that. Then it was off the air. Remember Weird Al did the song, I Lost on Jeopardy, right? Yes. Yeah, and that song was so popular, they actually brought back the game show because of the Weird Al song, and it's been back, yeah, it's been back on since 1984. God, I bet somebody, like, was wishing that he would do a song about You Bet Your Life. (laughs) Yeah, Weird Al needs to do a song about, like, Pressure Luck or something, right? (laughs) Well, see, I only know it from the years that Alex Trebek was hosting. Right. So, and I worked for my parents, so every night at like 7.30, that would be on, either when we were in the kitchen or when I was tending bar. Uh, oh, I'm looking over here. Art Fleming was actually the first host of Jeopardy. Oh, well, I'll take people who hosted Jeopardy that I've never heard of for 500. <laughs> Jeopardy was hosted by Alex Trebek for like what everybody else remembers. I think they're, as of this recording, they're still kind of like on the fence on who's going to be the new permanent host. Yeah, I didn't really follow the whole like battle royale to see who is going to run the board. Right. I stopped watching game shows kind of in general when I stopped watching regular TV some years back, uh, only because it becomes a giant time suck. But I, I saw that they had um, the girl from Big Bang Theory. Oh, the girl that was, yeah, she played Blossom, right? Yeah, that's so the one that played Blossom. She's She did it part-time, and one of the guys that won like $9 jillion, he also did it for a while. So Right. And then uh, I'm looking at it now, too. Collectively, it's been on for 39 seasons. That's Jeez, Louise, that's a lot. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of seasons. That's a lot of questions. So they should have pressed Will Ferrell into service as Alex Trebek. That would have been... <laughs> That would have been totally worth watching, especially <laughs> right? for, for the celebrity days, right? I might sign up to watch regular TV again. If that <laughs> All right. Moving on to the 31st. Here's a good Jeopardy question. This practice of it happens twice a year and is completely useless and hated by everybody around the world. Oh. And, uh, the question is, what is U.S. Daylight Savings Time? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. It's our biannual bitching about clocks. March 31st, 1918. It only goes back just over 100 years. March 31st, 1918 was the first national U.S. daylight savings time. Germany and its allies had begun uh, about two years earlier. Same thing with the, uh, the United Kingdom. Right. And I think the reason that they did it was for war productivity, so that they could they could manage factories a little bit differently, and they didn't need as much coal to power power plants to run electricity to turn on lights. People started earlier. Right, because this would be right around World War One time. During right? yes, during the First World War. Yeah. I remember like whenever I was like in grade school, there was one year in Massachusetts where they decided that they weren't going to do it anymore because not every state does it. Right. Most of them do, but not every state does it. And I remember w- when I was in grade school, there was one year that they decided that they weren't going to change the clocks. And that lasted one year because we were all like walking to school in the dark. 
Yeah. Because the, you know, the sun was coming up so late, right? Right. <laughs> it definitely does make for a tough morning when you're eight and yeah. you're on your way to school in <laughs> pitch darkness. For the- Especially like, you know, there was, uh, it was well, I mean, I was in grade school, but in high school, I used to like walk through a cemetery to get to school, right? <laughs> but I'd be like Tom Sawyer swinging a dead cat trying to get rid of warts and stuff. <laughs> And then it's all great. The sun doesn't go down till 10 o'clock and all the kids have insomnia. I can't sleep. When we were out in Ohio, which is way at the end of the Eastern time zone, uh, we were out there, you know, for conventions over, you know, towards the end of June. So it's like the longest day of the year. And, you know, the sun is just down to like nip at the horizon. I'm like, oh, wow. What time is it? Like 930. It's like 930. Holy cow. (laughs) So, So this poses the question, Bill. Which of the two time changes do you feel impacts you the most? Negatively or positively? Oh, they both punch me in the stomach. It doesn't matter which way you you switch a clock. You would think that giving you the quote-unquote extra hour of sleep would be beneficial to me. Nope. I'm all screwed up. It doesn't matter which way they move it. I'm like that halfway. So I do much better when we lose the hour in the springtime. And my internal clock is synchronized with the post-March clock. Oh, wow. And I don't know why that is. But I'm way more energetic, and I get up earlier, easier, and I fall asleep earlier, faster, and I have more energy throughout the whole day. I definitely prefer daylight savings time over Eastern Standard Time. I I like the sun setting, you know, later on in the day. And here's the other thing. Uh, During George W. Bush's administration, they changed when we switched the clocks. They pushed it out a little further. You actually spend more time in daylight savings time than you do in standard time, which poses the question, if you're in daylight savings time longer, isn't that the standard? (laughs) The other question is like, doesn't this just prove that all time is relative, right? Especially lunchtime. Especially lunchtime, doubly so. (laughs) All right, what do we have for April the 1st? April 1st, 1973, John Lennon and Yoko Ono form a new country with no laws or boundaries called Newtopia. National anthem is silence. Go f yourself, John Lennon. Jeez. <laughs> Come on. Well, what is the gross national product of Newtopia, by the way? Oh, I, I think he he and Yoko Ono just uh, used to just huff their own farts. It's yep. it's an example of like art the way Kurt Vonnegut used to describe it as like art disappearing up its own asshole. Like, sure. That's what I feel like 1970s John Lennon and Yoko Ono stuff is. <laughs> I I have lived in a artist type world my entire life. I do love art. I love all kinds of art, all kinds of media, all kinds of art, whether it's painting, sculpting, performances, all that. You know, I I'm I'm a very artistically minded person. That being said, there are certain things that quote unquote artists do. The famous one from a couple of years ago that somebody, you know, duct taped a banana to a wall and sold it for ten grand. Mm -hmm. Or somebody left their glasses on the floor and people started taking pictures of it and stuff. Right. Yep. I have a theory. Anything that I can recreate in under 10 minutes is not art. It doesn't qualify. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. I I think if it provokes a reaction, it's art. Good or bad. Well, then here's one, right? I remember watching this like TV show or whatever. It was about art or performance arts and all that. And there was this one guy that like lived as a dog for like a month and you could go like visit him in this like kennel and he would like crawl over to you and start barking at you and then he would like 
piss like by lifting up his leg because he was like completely naked too, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like that invokes a reaction, and my reaction is F- off. <laughs> Mine Go is well, home. well, that's a thing I saw. Yeah, <laughs> grow up. That's my reaction. Go get a job. <laughs> so I don't know that Newtopia went anywhere or was anything other than. I'm going to guess it was the two of them laying in bed like, we're going to be in this bed until forever. Uh The makers of ivory soap declared war on them and they lost instantly. Right, right. The name got co-opted by a soft drink, remember? Fruitopia. Oh, yeah. Fruitopia, yeah. That was much better. Smelled much better, too, yeah. It was much less annoying. (laughs) Remember the catchphrase? It was... (laughs) I also remember the catchphrase that was like, this drink will be bigger than Jesus. <laughs> All right, let's move on to April the 2nd. April the 2nd, 1968, Stanley Kubrick's Opus 2001, A Space Odyssey premieres. Ah, I did not see that movie up until maybe a couple of years ago. Oh, I saw it as a late teen or early 20s guy. That movie is like three hours long. There is no dialogue for, like, the first 35 minutes of the movie. It's a long and arduous film to get through. I, whenever I was watching it, I was like, I, I, I can't believe how slowly my life is passing me by. And maybe about, like, three days later, I started, like, really thinking about the movie. And I was like, my God, that movie is brilliant. I want to watch it again. I have not, but I want to. I want to watch it again because that movie is absolutely stunningly brilliant and immaculately well done. It paints a wonderful story. It's a great movie, but it doesn't make a lick of sense while you're watching it. (laughs) It helps if you read the book after. And the book came out, after. I think, after just as the movie came out as well. Because Arthur C. Clarke, who was writing the script with Stanley Kubrick, was also writing the novel at the same time. So it wasn't based on the novel. It was it was co-written at the same time. You can change novel pages as you get closer to the end, but it's really hard to change a film. Okay. <laughs> it's really hard to change a film when you're getting close. Like, yeah, let's, you know what? Let's have the spaceship go left. It's like, ah. Oh. Call John Dykstra, book the studio, pull the model out of the closet, get the lights again. You know what I mean? It doesn't. It's way expensive. So there's some differences in the book and the film, but the the film is super groundbreaking. It's I'd say still measure for measure, it has the best of the periods pre CGI special effects of still of any film, and that's yeah. largely due to John Dykstra, who would go on to do a bunch of stuff for Lucas and Lucasfilm, doing the work for the space the rotating space station and for the the Jupiter probe and stuff. Uh, just astonishing. A couple of things about the movie that are like interesting is that movie was made, you know, 1968. We're talking 54 years ago. There's like certain technologies in the film that exist now. Like they're using almost like iPads yes. and tablets in the movie. So like you see that and you're like, oh, you actually think nothing of it because it's so commonplace now. And then you're like, well, well wait a second. <laughs> you know, this is 54 years ago. This is before they even landed on the moon. Yeah, and the, and the moon, uh, like the moon scenes where they find, you know, they find the big obelisk on the moon at one point. Yeah. Um, composition wise and everything is very close to what it actually looked like when in '69 when when astronauts landed actually on the moon. The gravity's not right, the movements aren't right, but the the surface and background and view of the sky and everything is was like right on. I can right. see why people think that the moon landing was. Faked? I mean, Kubrick had something to do with it because of how good it looks in 2001 A Space Odyssey. And, lest we forget, Ric Flair's theme. (laughs) 
Also, Sprack Zarathustra! <laughs> and a uh, lesser known, uh, everybody kind of knows about the Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon synchronization. Yes. With Wizard of Oz. Apparently, you can sync up the last, like, from Jupiter forward of 2001 Space Odyssey with Echoes from the oh, metal really? album that it lines up pretty well. Yeah, you can find those on YouTube. Huh, I'll have to go look for that. I wonder if you can sync up the first hour with, like, more Greatest Hits of the Monkees. <laughs> no, well, actually, you can sync it up with the national anthem of Newtopia. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what do we got for the last day? What do we got for the third? April 3rd is one of our favorite things, Bill. It's a, it's a silly holiday day. Yay! So April 3rd is don't go to work unless it's fun day, which if you ask me is one of the most important holidays in the calendar. And I like the fact that it lands on a Sunday. <laughs> well, there's see, there you go. There's an even better reason not to go to work unless it's fun. Unless it's fun or double time, yeah. Or double time, yeah, exactly. I try my best to have a fun, at least atmosphere at my job. You know, that's gone to and against me over the years. But, I mean, seriously, if you can't have, like, fun and a good attitude when you're working, why bother? You know what I mean? Yeah. I always try to, like, decorate my office with, like, different things. Like, I got... (laughs) My office door has police tape going across it with, like, you know, warning and stuff. You know, just I have, like, little optical illusions and mad. I actually have a magic trick sitting on my desk. And when engineers come into my uh, office to discuss, you know, I'll hand them this box. I go, here, try to open this. While, you know, and they're over there, you know, fidgeting with it. And it's a magic trick. You can't open it until you release a certain button, you know. But the the button's hidden. But that's the kind of thing that I do at work. I, I mean, I can understand how that can get frustrating for people when they just want to get work done and I'm over there like Harry Stone from Night Court. But other than that, man, yeah, I lose my mind. I don't know about you. Yeah, my, uh, I do a lot of talking as part of my job. So my job is never truly like boring or displeasurable um, in that aspect. But it's like anything else, you know, I can always think of things I'd rather be doing. That, as, as is the undoing with every other person. Like, I could be home writing a story, or I could be, I don't know, walking in the snow, or I could be anywhere else on Earth. But here I am. It's not bad. I like my job. I and, talk a yeah. lot at my job, too, but it has that's not part of it. <laughs> yeah, my, yeah, mine is part of it. So I present a lot of information and facilitate a lot of discussion. So that's why some of the recordings that we do on this show, I start to sound like, Marge Simpson's mother, because I've been talking for six hours before I come here. All right. Well, before we end up talking for six hours over here, let's move (laughs) on to the celebrity birthdays. I like it. All right. Celebrity birthdays. March the 28th, 1969. Buddy, buddy, buddy. It's Vince Vaughn. Yeah. He hasn't done much lately that's been, like, big. I think it's because everybody hates working with him. Oh, well, that, that definitely if you're tough to work with, that'll definitely make it harder to make movies, I guess. Yeah. You know how he is in certain, like, he gets very typecast where he's, his characters are always kind of, like, the same. They're very, very talkative. They're almost like a pain in the ass. Well, apparently he's like that in real life. This is, hey, this guy's not acting. <laughs> right. It limits your ability to take on roles that are different than that. I will say this, though. He did two, uh, I guess you could call them horrors. Maybe you could just call it a drama. 
um, or whatever. He was Norman Bates in the remake of Psycho. And I know a lot of people have a lot of hatred for that movie. I liked it, and I liked him. I thought he did a great job as Norman Bates. I hated that movie, but I liked him in The Interns. Okay. Um, I did not see The Interns. But did you see the one he did with John Travolta where he was like the stepfather? Nope. Okay. He was really good in that, too. As a matter of fact, he was the only good thing about that movie. That movie was (laughs) wholly forgettable, but he was really good in it. All right. Moving on. March 29th, 1941. Terrence Hill, a name you may not recognize. And I don't. He was an, he's an actor who was in a ton of spaghetti westerns at the end of the spaghetti western period and crossed over and made a bunch of terrible movies <laughs> in the United States. He's probably best known. I don't know if you have ever seen the Trinity Trinity movies. Trinity is still my name. They call me no. Trinity and there's one other no. one. No. Uh, he made a film that was really popular on cable TV back in the 80s called Super Fuzz. Ooh! Well, which you have clearly really seen. I, I can see my neighbors like looking out their windows right now. <laughs> yes. What was that noise? Yes, I've seen Super Fuzz a bunch of times. He's yes. a terrible actor. He is, uh... <laughs> yeah, you gotta kind of know what you're getting into with Terrence Hill. Now, if you like Terrence Hill and his, his sort of funny, he's his shtick is that he's like in funny spaghetti westerns. He doesn't do drama. Uh-huh. And he's a funny guy, does a lot of physical comedy. And most of the time he was paired up with a ginormous Swedish dude named Bud Spencer. Okay. And they made a ton of movies together that are all really funny. Some of which can be seen on YouTube and others on Amazon Prime. Now I want to see Super Fuzz. They have Super Fuzz on Amazon Prime, but it's an Italian. Yeah, I don't know why, but it's an Italian. That's what it was made in. Oh. But if anybody doesn't know him, he's worth looking for the the films with Trinity in the title. He was also in a film with um, Henry Fonda called His Name Was Nobody. <laughs> it's an okay Sergio Leone late, late period spaghetti western. Henry Fonda's good in it, though. All right. Speaking of nobodies, currently residing in the Where Are They Now file, your friend and mine, born March the 30th, 1962, M.C. Hammer. He's not legit enough to not quit. Yep. MC Hammer came on the scene and then was gone so fast it messed up my hair. I listened to his first record, courtesy of my brother Aaron, 400 trillion times. Really? Yeah. Never been my genre. His impact at the time is undeniable. But, you know, outside of you can't touch this, what else? You know what I mean? He he was legit to quit. Uh, yeah, I mean, Too Legit to Quit exists, but other than that, it was like, what else? I mean, can can you, I mean, there was that other song, Pray, which was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, that's off his, I think, his second record. I don't know, man, but that guy made enough money with that You Can't Touch This song, made enough money, just enough money to not keep track of it enough to go completely bankrupt. Yeah, he was pretty much the gross domestic product of the equivalent of a small town. Yeah. Um, At one point, of, yeah. Of an entourage of people that hung around with him, and they just bled him dry. He ended up. Remember, he was on the celebrity, uh, like not celebrity Big Brother, but one of the like the celebrity Real World shows with Maybe. the guy from Webster. Oh, Emmanuel Lewis. Vince, yeah, and Vince Neil. He was on that season of that show. Do you remember that? I no, I I, I didn't watch a lot of TV in that decade. That, so that was the last of those shows that I watched. I think all the way through. Uh-huh. Was that one with him and Vince Neil, and he's he's at that point he'd become like a preacher, a reverend, and that's where he gets some bells. But I don't think I ever really watched it. Oh, uh, last time I saw him, he was in a 
like Cheetos commercial, which was actually kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> All right, what do we have for the 31st? Well, a guy who's never been in a Cheetos commercial, uh, March 31st, 1955, Angus Young, the schoolboy-dressed guitar-playing maestro from ACDC, probably currently playing Thunderstruck someplace. (laughs) Uh, If not, Thunderstruck is on every classic rock station probably right now. One of my favorite interviews ever, and I haven't brought this up, shame on me. Somebody, and I'm, I'm going to have to paraphrase here because I don't remember the exact wording, but somebody, some interview got like really ballsy and asked Angus Young, what's it like to have recorded the exact same album 11 times in a row? And Angus Young, without missing a beat, goes, that's preposterous. We have 12 albums. That was me that told you that story. Oh, was it? <laughs> yeah, and I heard that interview inside of a record store, the mall in Dartmouth, Mass. Oh, wow. That was the best answer that you could possibly have. He was born in Scotland, even though, uh, you know, ACDC is like the gross national product of Australia. Right. Um, but he and his uh, his brother Malcolm are the, well, were the core of that band. And then there's another, either a brother or cousin who was in the Easy Beats, which was like a 1960s, like, hip mod band. Uh, before ACDC was ACDC. I don't know what you're talking about. I figure you're having another Mandela effect. I'm not. It's a it's a real bad. Their one single that it didn't chart. I don't think it charted here, but it charted in England. It's called Fridays on My Mind. I will take your word for it. Take my word for it. All right, moving on to April the 1st. April the 1st, born in 1578. That's a long time ago. Uh, a man by the name of William Harvey. All right, but anyway, he was an English physician. He discovered the function of the heart and the circulatory system. Now, hold on. Let's back this up for a second. This guy was born in 1578. So let's tack on another, like, you know, 25 years or so before he made this discovery. So we're talking 1600 for round numbers, right? That seems a little late, don't you think? (laughs) It, it does. And then I, I think about the time. I'm going to guess that it was. it's like bringing your car to a guy who your friend knows that is good with cars to get something fixed. Yeah. And you don't really know them. And they're like, oh, you don't need this. And they take something out of your engine bay and they hand it to you. And you're like, what does this do? Like, don't worry. You don't need that. I only needed new wipers. What are you doing? <laughs> exactly. And I think that that's, that sort of mentality is the way everybody was up until this guy was like, well, let's let's find out what that thing is that you just took out. And then figured out like, oh, this thing pumps the red stuff through all of these little things. Where does this go? And when this thing stops pumping, the person dies. <laughs> you know? So but we probably need to keep that pumping somehow. It's just preposterous, because I like saying that word now. It's just preposterous to me that, like, humans have been on Earth for about 200,000 years, and it's only been in the last... 400 years that we know what the heart does? Well, yeah, and it doesn't surprise me that much. I mean, it was like right up until like around 1960, 1917, where if you went to the doctor, you're like, Doc, I've been coughing like mad and I can't sleep and I've got this weird fever. He's like, I know exactly what you need. Hold on, I'm going to go get the leeches. And uh, (laughs) and off he went to the pond behind his office. Yeah, smoke this cigarette. By the way, you need a haircut. (laughs) Right, exactly. Your humors are all messed up. Uh, I want you to go home and eat some shrimp and then jump on a trampoline for 25 minutes every day uh, under the full moon, and you should be right as rain. Also, your neighbor's a witch. Yeah. Seriously, like, if I ever got, like, the DeLorean time machine, my first order of business is to go back to, like, the 1500 be like, what the hell are you people doing anyway? (laughs) Stop it. Stop cutting that guy apart. 
Stop it! Get to work! All right, uh, what do we got for the second? April 2nd, 1939, uh, American soul singer and final single with sexual healing, Marvin Gaye, is born in Washington, D.C. And ultimately, when he died, he needed shotgun wound healing. Yeah, that was a, that was a sad piece of, uh, piece of event there. It was like at some sort of like family reunion, and he got into an argument with his father, right? His father's the one that shot him, right? Yeah, his, his dad is the one that shot him. And, and ostensibly, the, arg- the uh, description is because he had fallen off the cocaine wagon and his father was like, you can't be saved and blasted him, which is uh, rough. I do want to send a little nod uh, nod and a wink to former Twibley co-host uh, Jezebel Grace, who used to talk about the song Sexual Healing from Marvin Gaye. Uh, she had her own lyrics for it and she would sing, when I get that feeling, I want Szechuan chicken. <laughs> Which is a much better way to do things than talking about, you know. Uh, Marvin Gaye, unfortunately, is going to be remembered for being murdered by his father. Um, but, I mean, an, ex- an extensive and awesome career. Uh, a, very, a very sexy career, yeah. Funny, uh, as somebody who, who buys a lot of vinyl records now, I noticed that like all the places that generally have the most bland and boring selection of records, if they have records at all, like Best Buy or like Barnes and Noble, for a couple of months they all had featured like tons of copies of his best record, which, if you ask me, is what's going on. Yeah. I'm like, what? The, why is this thing? And it's, it was like the for 45th anniversary or something of that record coming out. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, I listened to that on my album of the day not long ago. Great album. Yep. Hey, you know who doesn't have a lot of great albums? Our next birthday boy, April the 3rd, 1942, Mr. Las Vegas himself, Wayne Newton. Ah, Julian Grendel. Yes, Julian Grendel from the Ford Fairlane movie. Uh, Wayne Newton had over 25,000 concert performances during his uh, tenure in Las Vegas. That's a lot. That's a real lot. It makes me think of like, remember the whole like debacle with Adele trying to get a residency off the ground and failing miserably at it? Yes. Like, I wonder if somebody came along and said, you know, Wayne Newton's dog died. He was here. Mm-hmm. His parents died of old age. He was here. Broke up with and or started a new relationship with approximately 4,528 cocktail waitresses. And he was here. He did 10,000 shows. 25,000. 25,000 shows. Right. Now, and you here, can't get your residency off the ground. Here's the thing. Okay, if you work eight hours a day, five days a week for the entire year, that comes out to a little over 2,000 hours, okay? You would have to work for 10 years to have 25,000 hours. That's a lot, man. That guy, I know he was there for more than 10 years, but that's a lot of freaking shows that guy did. He must have did three shows a day for 30 years. It's funny, I hit him down halfway through that, like, hey, you know, Wayne, I've been, I watched your show, and I, I saw it, like, four years ago. It's great, it's the same show, how do you do it? How do you do the exact same show, <laughs> night after night after night? And and I'm sure his answer was like, dude, this is a job, I don't have time to write new music. <laughs> All I can do is the songs that everybody knows. He says, that's preposterous, we have 26,000 shows. <laughs> right, exactly, we have 26,000. I used to have a Christmas record of Wayne Newton when I was a kid, but, like, I didn't know how to read yet. In my mind, it was uh, this record was a big woman that was singing. That's how I visualized it. And I remember picking up the record once I learned how to read, and I said, it's Wayne Newton. I'm like, I said to my mother, I was like, Wayne? That's a boy's name. I thought this was a woman. And she, my mother just laughed. 
She's like, nope, that's a boy. That's just the way he sings. And then I said, well, then, that's just... The worst song ever. All right, Jeff, what do we got today? What's our uh, what's our worst song ever this week? Our worst song ever. Uh, going back, not even into the vault this time. I'm not even going that far back in the grand scheme of bad songs. Okay. Uh, it's a known fact on this show and in other parts of the universe that I am no real fan of 1990s rock and roll. All what would become known as alternative. I was just so talking about week- that today at work. I was saying to the dude that I work with about... You know, musically, I'm a rock guy, but when it comes to the 90s, I prefer the dance music and hip-hop of the 90s over the rock. So, who's our victim this week, then? Our victim is um, a British band that, not surprisingly, was super popular in the United States for a while, but not very popular in Britain, is Bush. Oh, Jesus. Their second single off their first album, 16 Stone, called Glycerine. Which is not a good song, Bill. No, it's it's drudgy. Well, hold on, let's play it and then we'll we'll pick it apart like it's a fifth grade frog in science class. Yeah, what a toe tapper that is, huh? That really gets your blood pumping. Oof. Yeah, it, it does all the things that I'm I'm making air quotes as I say grunge song, but it does it hits all the same notes as every band that was out at the time that was really popular. So like Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, Nirvana, Stone Temple Pilots, etc. In that it's dirgy. It almost feels like it's detuned. There's no guitar solo. There's no like flair. And it's delivered in that like it's the most important song. In the history of songs. But the lyrics are all just, it's just a rhyme scheme. The lyrics yeah. don't mean anything. I've read through it like now 30 times and I'm like, I don't, this is like throwing down Scrabble tiles. Like, oh, I'll make an S word here. <laughs> um, and I remember listening to this record a ton. I, I have the CD. This is a CD I bought in 1994. Why? How? Why? Explain yourself. <laughs> you know, it was, it was on the radio and I was like, ah, like. I thought Machine Head was a decent song when I heard that song. And I thought Everything Zen was kind of an okay song, although they're pretty much the same song. I think they are. And and there are elements of them that reminded me of other better bands. Like, they remind me of Buffalo Tom from, like, around 1992 or so. This is exactly my point, okay? You know, like, Pac-Man was a very popular video game. And, like, Centipede was a very popular video game. And there was, like, all sorts of, like rip-off games that you could buy for, like, the you know, the Commodore 64 or whatever gaming system that you had. I especially liked Pac-Mentor. Yeah. <laughs> but you could buy, like, Bug Blast. Yes. Which is, like, this very obvious centipede rip-off. Right. But you could get it for cheap, you know? You would pay, like, $20 for Centipede, but you could get Bug Blast, which was essentially the same game, for, like, $8, $9, oh, or something yeah, yeah. like that. So yeah. Bush is definitely is, the dollar store of Stone Temple Pilots. Right. So Bush being this like bug blast of, of Nirvana, it would be something if you could get Bush for $8, $9. But their CDs are the same price as like Nirvana. Just buy Nirvana and shut up. <laughs> yeah, there's a good description in, in one of the articles that I read about the history of the band and, is that they were described as, yep, that's a grunge record. 
and it hits all the grunge notes because that's the what the producers wanted them to sound like. I guess before they put out 16 Stone, they kind of sounded like NXS, which, okay. They were, they're Australian. They, they were Australian. They were, you know, from the land of ACDC and kangaroos and crocodiles. But And air supply. And air supply. And I went through and listened to 16 Stone today. And it has all the hallmarks of a band that's trying really hard to ape Nirvana, but doesn't know what makes Nirvana interesting. So the lyrics for all of their songs are gibberish. The guitars are detuned in all the songs. There's no crescendo to any of the music. It reminds me of what you would use to show someone like, this is sort of the kind of music that the 1990s was about. And then you'd say, now... You get an idea for this, like the feel of it, right? So now let me go get an artist that's good-ish. I'm saying this as somebody who doesn't think any of these artists are good, but let's go listen to Pearl Jam so you can hear uh, lyrics that aren't gibberish delivered with this super-duper earnest vocals that you get in Bush. Or let's go listen to Nirvana, where the musicianship is fantastic, but the lyrics are all stupid. Or (laughs) let's go listen to Stone Temple Pilots, which is way more polished than both of those, and already has the fingers of like Steve Albini and a hundred different producers involved in it, trying to make it sound like it's radio friendly. It's not. Bush basically took all the parts that were bad about all the bands that you love and just rolled them into an album. Yeah, Bush and ultimately was- he made he made what's a, f- a freaking love song to soap because that's all I can figure out that this, <laughs> that this that this song is about. When I was looking up Glycerine, because uh, I was looking up the chord progression, I wanted to try noodling with it on the. Uh, on my ukulele, and the first thing that came up is that you could order suppositories, and I was like, no, that's definitely not what I'm looking for, although you could make an argument. <laughs> so, like, Bush, I, I, you said they were British. I didn't even realize. So, essentially, Bush was, like, the American answer, even though they were British, to grunge, which was an American um, <laughs> music style. Yes. Oh, my God. Didn't he? He was married to Gwen Stefani, wasn't he? He was, yeah, Gavin Rostow. Can you imagine living in that house? I would jam my freaking eardrums out with freaking ice picks. Well, I'm sure that's why she she ran off to Nashville and is now hanging out, making country records down there with, like, Keith Urban, right? No, um, is she? Yeah, I think she's married to him. What a world, what a world. What a time to be alive. The other thing that was funny about Bush at this time was that they were super-duper heavily promoted by... Interscope Records and Warner Brothers. And I remember reading an interview either in Spin or Rolling Stone with Gavin Rossdale. And he was such an insufferable asshat that <laughs> like, I just I wanted to reach through the magazine and dope slap him a couple of times. Why are you arrogant? You're not yeah. good. All right. So uh, before we wrap up the show, we got to get to our very popular and always very well received trivia question. My trivia question for you, young Jeff. Uh Oh, the question was, what is Donald Duck's middle name? Ha, Donald Duck's middle name. Yep. Donald Duck's middle name. This is me trying to get out of the show without telling you that I don't know Donald Duck. I'm just going to say confit. That's an excellent guess. Wrong, but excellent guess. Nope. His middle name is (laughs) Fauntleroy. I can't even say it right. Ready? Fauntleroy. Fauntleroy. Yep. Fauntleroy. First revealed in the 1942 film, Donald Gets Drafted. So on his, yeah, on his draft notice, it said Donald Fauntleroy Duck. I'm sure there were no offensive Asian stereotypes in that film. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> not from the even-tempered uh, Walt <laughs> Disney. Certainly not. <laughs> certainly not. He, how, how could he be making fun of, uh, of ethnic stereotypes when he was too busy turning in communists? 
All right. But that is going to wrap up the show for this week. We will see you back here in seven days. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. Bye, Bye, guys. Hey, thanks for listening to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Special thanks to James Coster for our theme music. You can find us and message us on Instagram and Facebook using TWWWBLY. Make sure you spread the word and tell all your friends about the Twibbly podcast. Dan Quayle never listened to Twibbly, and look what happened to him. <laughs>